Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday. Let me give you a look at what's coming up at this hour. French fury. Hundreds arrested after a second night of protests across France. Nationwide outrage following the killing of a teenage boy by police in a Paris suburb. A protest march happening in Paris at this hour, attended by the victim's mother. President Macron calling for calm as he mobilizes 40,000 officers to help keep the peace. We're live in Paris for the latest. Plus, more Moscow mystery, high-level intrigue as one of Russia's top generals, who is rumoured to have known about the weekend's mutiny attempt, vanishes from view. CNN asked the Kremlin about General Sergei Surovikin's whereabouts. We were told no comment. More details on that shortly. And central heating. The heads of the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England see more rate hikes ahead as global inflation remains elevated. Fedger Powell saying at an ECB forum that U.S. inflation won't fall to the 2% target until perhaps 2025. Therefore, rate hikes this summer are possible. U.S. investors way ahead of him, so little market reaction in response to that. Green on the screen, as you can see there, for U.S. stock market futures and a mixed picture. I can show that to you, too, across in Europe. A sizable upward revision to U.S. GDP in the fourth quarter of last year. Helping sentiment this morning, though, too, suggesting the economy remains resilient even in the face of those persistent rate hikes. Growth rising at a 2% annualised rate. That's up from a previous print or read of 1.3%. So that's a huge revision higher. Also today, chip stocks recovering from Wednesday's weakness after a strong forecast from Micron, but fears that the US could restrict the sale of artificial intelligence chips to China remains. NVIDIA warning of the negative future effects of a chip export ban. We've got all the details on that coming up too. For now, U.S. bank stocks also higher pre-market after they passed the latest round of Fed stress tests. The results suggest the U.S. banking system remains strong, paving the way for potential dividend hikes from major banking firms. Lots to get to, as always. But first, we do begin in France. And a massive march is currently underway in protest over the fatal shooting of a teenager by police. Around 150 police people were arrested last night amid violent demonstrations. And Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, this is a protest against that killing by police of that teenager. But it's also, as you've been pointing out now for some hours today, a protest about years perhaps, of perceived maltreatment. That's right. Years of pent-up frustration that you're seeing even now on the streets of Nanterre, Julia, to the northwest of Paris. That is the suburb where that march is now taking place uh, that was called for by the mother of young Nael, which is also uh, the part of uh, Paris, the outskirts of Paris, uh, where this killing took place 
on Tuesday morning. Now, tonight, once again, authorities are bracing for another night of violence, not just there, because it's now spread far beyond that to other cities across France and, uh, more specifically, those neighbourhoods, the suburbs around Paris uh, that uh, have traditionally uh, felt these sorts of uh, grievances most cleanly, keenly. Now, at heart of all this, of course, is the killing on Tuesday morning of young Nael, a Frenchman of Arab origin, just 17 years old. Particularly damning to the police, uh, Julia, was the video that emerged shortly after the stop uh, at which he was killed. Uh, that video at odds with what we now understand the police had initially claimed in their defense that the car had been coming towards them. In fact, as you can see on the video, uh, young Nael was killed uh, essentially in cold blood as he tried to drive away from the policeman. That has caused a great deal of controversy, as you can imagine, because, Julia, it goes back to so many other cases uh, of allegations of police brutality that has sometimes all too tragically ended uh, fatally, as it did on Tuesday morning, but allegations of police brutality and of racism on the part of the police. And that is always very difficult to speak about here in France, given the traditional ban on any collecting of anything to do with race or ethnicity. That is why you're seeing all of that pent-up frustration in those neighbourhoods of France, some of the least well-off neighbourhoods of France, where you traditionally have a much greater mix of people and where these things have been felt most keenly. That's been what's bubbling up. We've seen it before. 2005 comes to mind when it took an entire summer to put out the fires in some of these neighborhoods that had been uh, lit by a similar story, two young men trying to police, flee a police check uh, who tragically lost their lives. Again, this pent-up frustration out on the streets of Nanterre once again today and likely uh, to take over, kick off once again across the country tonight. Some 40,000 police officers have been mobilised, Julia. Melissa, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. We were just showing a close-up there of some of the individuals that are on that march today and it was all kinds of people, children, men, women, all different colours, shapes and sizes of, of individual citizens that are protesting this. And I think it's important to point that out too, um, across subsection, I think, of society. Melissa, what are the authorities expecting? Are they expecting another evening of protest? 40,000 troops is a lot. It's, it's a lot. In you, when you consider, Julia, that yesterday it was just 2,000 uh, policemen and women who'd been mobilised, it's a huge increase and it speaks to the violence that they expect tonight to spread. Now, what we saw overnight was specifically state institutions being targeted. So you were looking at uh, schools, uh, police stations, um, anything that represented the republic. And that's been the message of politicians this morning. This is not about the state. This is about the misdoing of one particular police officer now being investigated. In fact, we've just been hearing Julia, who's actually now been suspended. That's been the line taken over and over again after this crisis meeting that was chaired by Emmanuel Macron this morning. Whether or not that is now going to be heard uh, in those neighborhoods where already uh, you're seeing at that march, which has moved from outside the police station where it was meant to take place deep into the cité, uh, the parts of the, those neighborhoods uh, where so much of this anger is being felt. Uh, and what you're likely to see over the course of the evening are those very real frustrations to do with not just long-standing feelings of discrimination, uh, but very often allegations of specific instances of police brutality that it has been impossible to 
pinpoint, to label, to call by their name because of these difficulties uh, linked to a proud tradition here in France of secularism where the state institutions refuse to look at questions of ethnicity, race. Everyone in France is meant to be a citizen equal in front of the Republic. That has made investigating these kinds of allegations and this feeling that you're now seeing exploding on the streets very difficult indeed, Julia. Yes, Ms. Bell, thank you so much for that. Questions in the meantime swirling over the whereabouts of General Sergei Surovikin, who, according to one unconfirmed report, knew in advance about the Wagner chief's plan to defy Moscow. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, there's all sorts of rumours swirling that there's some kind of purge taking place in Russia amid the top military leadership. Much of this is speculation. Can you tie the threads together for us and um, tell us what facts we actually have, too? So just a little bit about Sergei Surovikin, Julia. He is a very high-ranking commander in the Russian military. For three months at the end of last year, he headed up the entire operation in Ukraine. And he's known to be, if not sympathetic to Wagner, at least sort of slightly closer to him than the other members of the military top brass, for which Prigozhin has reserved uh, a large degree of criticism, anger, and according to the Wall Street Journal, was planning to capture uh, originally as part of his uh, insurrection inside Russia. Surovikin, the only fact that we know for sure is that we don't know where he is. He has not been seen since the very early hours of Saturday morning when he released a video message pre-recorded uh, telling Prigozhin essentially to back off to stop what he was doing uh, with his so-called march on Moscow. Since then, the rumor mill around him has been in overdrive, including a, an unconfirmed report from the Moscow Times that he might have been arrested. That is, is very much unconfirmed. The consensus now uh, among military bloggers and observers is that he uh, is not in custody. But we have, of course, asked the Ministry of Defense, a spokesperson, saying they couldn't say anything. The Kremlin continues to refer all questions to the Ministry of Defense. There is also speculation, Julia, around the whereabouts of his deputy, Andrei Yudin, uh, a prominent Russian journalist, suggesting that he might have been sacked. Again, very much unconfirmed on that uh, regard. And he's not the only uh, major figure in this uh, unfolding saga who is yet to be seen. General Gerasimov, the head of the armed forces in Russia, has yet to be seen uh, since this rebellion. Uh, and uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin himself, who uh, Alexander Lukashenko, president of Belarus, says is in his country. But we have yet to see actual evidence of that. So there are still a lot of questions around this. And we will continue to ask them. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Now, heavy hearts on the high seas. Recovery crews have picked up what they believe to be human remains from the site of the Titan submersible wreckage. The Titan suffered a catastrophic implosion last week, taking the lives of all five people on board. Pieces of the vehicle are being transported to Canada as an investigation into the tragedy continues. Paula Newton joins us now. Paula, I think it was tough for any of us to imagine what might be brought to the surface when we're using terminology like a catastrophic implosion. But actually, I was quite surprised by the scale, actually, of, of what was being brought up. But now that the real investigative work begins. Yeah, so, so are many of us, although engineering experts tell us that, look, it, it's not uncommon given it was an implosion and not an explosion. Having said that, I think the most significant piece of this, Julia, is the fact that human remains uh, were found. This is, of course, a somber moment for families and yet may bring them a measure of comfort. Now, we got that news from the U.S. Coast Guard, who then said that uh, U.S. medical professionals would now conduct a formal 
analysis on what they presume to be human remains. On top of that, we got the Transportation Safety Board uh, here in Ottawa. Julia telling us uh, just late last night that they have finished collecting relevant documents and completed the preliminary interviews. What's important here is that they say that they have the Voyage data recorder from the Polar Prince, and that was the mothership that, for communication purposes, was tethered to the Titan. That is very important. They also say that those large pieces of debris that we've been seeing for 24 hours now that are now on shore, um, that they've cataloged those, they've looked at them, and are now in the possession of the U.S. Coast Guard. The U.S. Coast Guard saying that they will be brought, um, obviously, to the United States for thorough analysis. So many investigations going on here. But a week out, Julia, certainly more clues, more evidence that they can delve into further. And for so many people that are interested in this, perhaps more conclusively, they can determine why this happened, whether there needs to be regulatory changes, and crucially, if if any kind of criminal charges need to be brought. I will caution, Julia, this is going to take several months, if not years, to complete. Yeah, and Paula, to your point, we pray a measure of comfort for the families and the friends of, of those involved in this. Paula Newton there. Thank you. Okay, let's bring it back to business now. An NVIDIA warning of a, quote, permanent loss of opportunities if the U.S. imposes new restrictions on exporting artificial intelligence chips to China. Multiple outlets reported Wednesday that the Biden administration is planning to tighten export curbs that were announced back in October. Washington has been increasing its efforts to cut China off from key technologies that can support its military. China is a key market for NVIDIA. The company reported that Hong Kong and mainland China accounted for 22 percent of its revenue last year. Rahel Solomon joins us on this. Rahel, it was interesting. The comments that were made by the company suggested that it wouldn't have a short term impact. It was a longer term problem because clearly this is a key growth market for them in the future. They can offset what they have today. But the future matters. Right. And it's all about the future in this warning. Right, Julia? So the chief financial officer of U.S.-based NVIDIA is saying that she doesn't actually expect any immediate material impact, but this is about future earnings. And investors seem to share the concerns. Shares were off. We can show you as much as 3 percent in yesterday's session, although they recouped some of those losses to close at 1.8 percent. NVIDIA is saying in part that we are aware of reports that the U.S. Department of Commerce is considering further controls that may restrict exports of our A800 and H800 products to China. Now, for context here, Julia, some of these chips here that uh, are mentioned were designed with those October restrictions in mind, right, with trying to be compliant uh, with these restrictions. And so what we're understanding, perhaps, about these expanded restrictions they would apply to those chips as well. So it really gives you a sense of with relations being what they are between the two nations, between U.S. and China, uh, how difficult the environment, the business environment is for some of these chip makers. Now, for the U.S.'s part, as you pointed out, the government says that it is concerned about how some of these uh, AI chip exports could be used in the Chinese military. Unclear at this point, Julia, what a timeline would be. But the Wall Street Journal reporting that, of course, we know that U.S. uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is expected to visit Beijing in just a matter of weeks. In fact, in early July, the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, this announcement will likely come on the back of that trip so as to not anger unnecessarily Beijing. We'll see. 
the problem then, of course, is that it sort of unwinds or damages any progress that's made in that trip. So um, the timing sort of feels like a moot point. Um, it's, a, it's a tough line to walk, isn't it, between saying that you're not trying to suppress innovation and technological development, but the worry about the defence applications, um, to your very valid point there. Rahel, great to have you with us. Thank you. Rahel Solomon. And a different kind of AI warning, this time on preventing bias. The philanthropist Melinda French-Gates says it's critical to get women involved in the development of powerful AI tools. She told my colleague Poppy Harlow she's worried women are being left behind in the AI arms race. I'm very nervous because we don't have enough women, again, who are computer scientists and who have expertise in artificial intelligence. And without that, we will bake bias into the system. Again, the system needs to take all people's points of view in and see society and quite frankly, see the world writ large as it is. When you have women at any of these places, when you're creating something, when you're making this decision, when you're setting a law, you're bringing that perspective of society that is just so vitally important. Can't argue with that. Straight ahead on first move, a lucky escape for these passengers after their jet touched down without the aid of a nose landing gear. That and the 4th of July travel getaway comes after the break. Plus, cleaning up some of our dirtiest industries. What does green steel mean in the push to decarbonize heavy manufacturing? We'll explain. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. airports are gearing up for the 4th of July holiday getaway. And tomorrow could be the busiest day in the skies since 2020. The Transportation Secretary says despite forecasts of travel problems, airlines are ready. We think tomorrow will be the busiest day of this holiday travel weekend. It may even prove to be the busiest day for air travel since the pandemic. United Airlines says it's all hands on deck, quote, after a multi-day scheduling meltdown forced it to cancel more flights than anyone else. Days of storms and other problems this week left thousands of passengers stranded. Let's get to Pete Montine now at Reagan National Airport in Virginia. Pete, great to have you back with us. Um, he said that airlines are ready, but evidence of the past, what, several days suggests otherwise. What is this weekend going to be like? You know, things are getting better uh, there, Julia, but it's not uh, out of the woods just yet. You know, today will be a huge test for air travel. 52,000 flights, according to the FAA, scheduled to depart today. That's the busiest going into the July 4th 
holiday weekend, although it's really United Airlines that has been struggling. They have canceled about 2,500 flights since Saturday, 7,000 flights delayed. We've been hearing from passengers stuck in these hours-long customer service lines to try and get on a new flight, but the problem is all of the flights are already full. They're not even able to get a seat, in some cases, until Monday. So Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg really swiped back at this assertion by United CEO Scott Kirby last night on CNN. Buttigieg said it's really not fair that Kirby said that this was all on the FAA and its air traffic controller shortage, especially in the New York area. United is a huge hub in Newark, New Jersey. But I want you to listen now to Buttigieg. He says that he does admit there are some air traffic control shortages, although he also underscores that United needs to look in the mirror at its own problems. United Airlines has some internal issues they need to work through. They've really been struggling this week, even relative to other U.S. airlines. Uh, But where we do agree is that there need to be more resources for air traffic control. The staffing levels there are not at the level I want to see there. They don't leave us with a lot of cushion. If you have a few people calling sick or if you have an unusual event, it really spreads the system thin. And so uh, we need to see higher staffing levels there. Over the last few days, United Airlines has canceled more flights than any other airline. We've really been watching this meltdown in slow motion, Julia. And what's so key here is that United is only now really acknowledging its schedule and operational issues and put out this statement for the first time saying that its flight attendants, its pilots, customer service reps, uh, baggage handlers will all work tirelessly to try to get the airline back on track now. And the airline also says it will be ready for this July 4th holiday rush and pull it out of the dive by tomorrow when United was anticipating it could be the biggest day for air travel on the airline since 2019. Five million passengers United anticipated handling in total over the July 4th holiday period, although we will see if it ultimately does serve all those people because it's been canceling so many flights, Julia. Yes. Good luck to all those intrepid travellers out there. I'm staying put, I have to say. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere near an airport. Um, Can I please speak to um, Pete the pilot now and get uh, marks out of 10 for the pilot that managed to land that plane without any of the front landing gear? These are extraordinary pictures. Pete, score? 12. Out of ten, uh, they did exactly. an excellent job. Eleven and a half. Uh, bringing in that uh, <laughs> that Boeing seven seventeen without a nose gear. The the landing gear uh, started to come down. It appears from some of the video. You can see the nose gear doors. They were open in some of the shadows of the video uh, that passengers took as the plane was coming into land. Uh, the crew got an unsafe light that says that the gear wasn't completely down before they landed. So they did a flyby at the airport there in Charlotte, then came back around and landed without a nose gear. A testament to the skill of the pilots, testament to the engineering of the airplane, too. Incredibly strong. It came down in one piece. Passengers, 96 on board this Delta flight, uh, evacuated using the emergency slides. Uh, The crew on board got out okay, too. Nobody hurt. That is the big thing to underscore here. A really, really nicely done job. The only issue was uh, Charlotte is a huge hub, and that runway had to be closed down for hours uh, until crews could clear that plane off of the runway, although... The good news now, it's open again. Yes. Congratulations to the pilot. Few to the crew and all the passengers on board. And I have to secretly say, I would have always wanted to go on one of those slides. But I think 
on a runway just in a demo would be perfect. Thanks. So I'm going to try one of those real life. Yes. Pete Wentine, thank you for that. Okay. Time to move on. The CEO of Anheuser-Busch wants to put the past behind it after a partnership with a trans influencer led to boycotts and a drop in sales. The beer giant has launched a new ad campaign focusing on its own workforce and suppliers. Bud Light lost its top spot in the United States market in May, a few weeks after it sent a personalized can to trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. CNN business and politics correspondent Vanessa Yakevich is here to explain all. Vanessa, for, for those in my audience who may not have seen what happened, the fallout with Bud Light, may not know Dylan Mulvaney, can you just explain and take us back and explain what happened and, and what the impact was on sales as a result? Yeah, so a few months ago, Bud Light sent one can of beer to transgender activist uh, Dylan Mulvaney. She posted it on her social media. And shortly after, there was some conservative backlash about the brand's move to send her this beer can. Uh, Bud Light really remained silent on it immediately. They wanted this to blow over, but it really picked up steam on social media. You also had the LGBTQ community coming out and wondering why Bud Light wasn't saying more to support their initial move to send this this can of beer. But this, as you said, had impacts on the company beyond just social media, social media branding. We saw uh, Bud Light sales dip about 24 percent leading up to the week of June 3rd. We saw bomb threats and harassment at breweries, Bud Light breweries. Uh, And we also have seen that Bud Light is no longer the best selling beer in America. That top spot uh, goes to Modelo. But you had the CEO speaking out for the first time on CBS yesterday, and he was trying to move the conversation away from the controversy and looking towards the future by talking about the importance of his employees and the 65,000 of them that get together through all the supply chain and try to bring Bud Light to the homes of millions of Americans. Listen to what he said about how he wants to look at the future. But as we move forward, um, you know, we want to focus on what we do best, which is brewing great beer for everyone, uh, listening to our consumers, being humble and listening to them, uh, making sure that we do right by our employees, take care uh, and support our partners, and ultimately make an impact in the communities that we serve. So the partners that he is talking about there are distributors who have seen losses themselves because of the drop in sales. And part of what uh, Bud Light has had to do is actually pay some of these distributors 20 to 50 cents per case because of the losses that they've seen. Also reimbursing distributors for fuel uh, because they transport Bud Light and they are presumably transporting a lot less. Also, Bud Light has spent a ton of money on new campaign ads, including one that that deals with uh, country music and the NFL, and also the CEO in that interview saying that he plans to increase the investment into Bud Light threefold. Uh, He also said that he believes that Bud Light will make it through this. One of the big things he said is that he wants to listen to consumers of all types, but he also went on to say that they are still continuing to support and invest in LGBTQ groups and organizations that they have over the past uh, few decades. 
decades. But this controversy very much started, Julia, on social media, has had financial impacts on the company. And yes, the CEO wants to move the conversation forward, but ultimately the consumer does have the power here. And what we're seeing is continued decline in sales of Bud Light. So whether or not this blows over soon, too soon to tell. A lot of people thought it would blow over in just a couple of weeks. It's been months now, Julia. The conversation's still ongoing. Yeah, it, there's so many angles that we could take here. Um, the question of perhaps as, as many companies often get accused of either greenwashing or pinkwashing, as it's known, having a controversial campaign, then not backing the decision to have it in the first place. You end up alienating um, everyone. I was going to ask you um, whether they, whether you think this will um, draw a line to the crisis, but I guess um, I guess we have to see. Um, I'm sure the big questions being asked um, internally. I've got I've got a, I've got an idea for them. Um, they should now sponsor the Musk versus Zuckerberg cage fight, <laughs> perhaps. They could even offer to give their advertising to the Twitter or the Facebook winner, quite frankly. A bit of testosterone back in the picture. I'm shaking my head and saying this with a wry smile. We don't even know if that cage fight's <laughs> going to happen. Yeah, Vanessa, probably best not to respond to this. Great to have you. Great to have you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Vanessa, good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. OK, coming up on First Move, what ordinary Russians think about the failed Wagner revolt? We'll take you to Red Square to find out next. Welcome back to First Move. And you're looking at the view from the top of our CNN studios in Manhattan. Pretty clear skies at this moment, but smoke from out-of-control Canadian wildfires spreading like wildfire across a number of other cities like Washington, D.C. and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Chicago also really suffering air quality there deemed the worst in the world on Wednesday. And a bit of a murky picture, too, in early trade on Wall Street as well. Stocks losing most of their pre-market gains on this second-to-last trading day before the end of the quarter. That's an important date. All of this, as strong U.S. economic data continues to pour in. A newly revised growth read shows the economy growing at a 2% annualized rate in the first quarter, much higher than initial estimates. I think that was the, um, yes, in the first quarter. Sorry, double-checking that much higher than expected. Meanwhile, Virgin Galactic shares are little changed as Countdown continues for its first ever commercial flight to the edge of space later today. Virgin set to take up three paying customers as well as three Virgin crew members. And a return to our top story today. Vladimir Putin's standing may have taken a major hit after the weekend revolt, but we wanted to understand how ordinary Russians felt. So we sent our senior international correspondent Matthew Chance to Red Square find out. Right, well, I've come to the centre of the Russian capital to try and get a sense of how this city feels in the aftermath of that attempted military uprising at the weekend. I can tell you, it feels pretty relaxed here. You can see there's a lot of Russians, a lot of tourists uh, that are here taking photographs of these iconic uh, uh, sites. Uh, I was trying to get into Red Square, actually, which is, is just here, but you can see there are barricades up. And in fact, those barricades have been up since the weekend when that military uprising uh, took place. You can just make out the domes of St. Basil's over there. Anyway, back to the people. I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have a word with some Russians about how secure they feel right now in the aftermath of that uprising. People like 86-year-old Nikolai 
unfazed, he told me, by events of recent days. Russia is its people, he says, not some individual show-offs. And regardless of what they do, Russia was, is and will continue to be strong, he says. But will its leader, Vladimir Putin, sealed off behind these Kremlin gates? You don't know an answer. Not many people want to speak to me about Putin. But those who would reject the suggestion recently made by President Biden that Putin has been weakened by the revolt in Russia. I think he'll be around for a long time, says Ilya. All the country's resources are in his hands and there's no real opposition. And there won't be any time soon, he says. But now he's in exile. The Wagner leader, who staged and aborted the rebellion, appears to be fair game. <laughs> you speak English, right? Yeah. Great. Let, let me ask you, what, what do you think about Yevgeny Prigozhin? Do you think he... No, we like it. <laughs> you, you, you do like or you don't? No, no. You don't like? No, we don't like him. Why? Pitch him off. I don't know. But, but he, he is... Not good. <laughs> well, it's pretty understandable, I suppose, that you know, given what's happened over the past few days, um, people don't really want to talk to, to us you know, that much on camera, because despite what most of them will say to us about everything being fine here, I think there genuinely is a sense of apprehension about what the coming weeks and months in this country may hold. Matthew Chance, CNN, in the centre of the Russian capital, Moscow. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Now, you may have heard of green hydrogen before on this show, but what about green steel? Well, in order to get one, you can use the other. That's according to H2 Green Steel. The firm is in the process of building a plant in Sweden using hydroelectric power to produce green hydrogen that will then be used to heat the ore in its steel ovens. The plant could be up and running by the end of 2025. The aim is to clean up an industry that's responsible for more than 7% of global CO2 emissions. And joining us now is Henrik Henriksen. He's the CEO of H2 Green Steel. Henrik, welcome to the show. I had great fun preparing for this interview, going back over old chemistry lessons with um, iron ore and blast furnaces. Uh, But you're planning to do this a little differently. So explain the concept of green steel and how we get there. Yeah, so thanks, Julia. So the, the traditional way of doing this is uh, admitting two tons of CO2 for one ton of steel. And what wow. we are doing is taking away 95% of that. So, so coming down to only 100 kilos for one ton of steel. Uh, and it's basically three platforms. Uh, it is green hydrogen that we produce from renewable energy coming from wind and hydropower. We use that green hydrogen in a process though, then called DRI, where we replace then the, the fossil natural gas uh, with the green hydrogen. 
uh, and then we produce a product that you can call green iron. And, and when that is still hot, we push that into a brand new steel mill to produce them green steel. So, so three platforms, green hydrogen, green iron and green steel. And uh, the first plant we're building is in northern Sweden. Uh, location is chosen because there is an abundance of renewable energy uh, at uh, a, a fair low cost. Um, and um, using then that location to build a blueprint, you can say, for then rolling it out and starting it in 2025, two and a half years from now, uh, and then rolling out the concept to, um, to South America, Southern Europe, but also to North America. Right. So um, no shortage of ambition in terms of um, how you're going to scale this. Um, the key statistic there for me was the 95 percent. So you're talking about a 95 percent reduction in the um, carbon emissions of creating equivalent steel. What about the cost required? Because one of the conversations we have on this show with hydrogen, green hydrogen, is the sheer cost it takes at this stage to produce it. So in terms of um, a quantity of steel, of green steel versus dirty steel, let's call it that. What's the cost difference yeah. today? Yeah, so the, the majority of the cost actually in producing both the green hydrogen and the green iron is, is electricity. So it yeah. will very much depend on where in the world you are. But in, in northern Sweden, you can say that the energy is landlocked. We cannot get it down south to, to through the country. So we're paying roughly around 30 megawatt uh, per uh, 30 euro per megawatt, uh, and and if you base it on that sort of uh, electricity price, uh, the green steel will be around 20 to 25 percent more expensive than the brown steel, and and that is accepted by our customers and customers that are coming mainly from the automotive industry, but also from uh, construction and building material um, appliances. Uh, and they see that they can actually get um, a premium for their products if they are then truly sort of a CO2 neutral when they are produced. And these are companies that signed up on science-based targets, so they've done their homework. So I would say 20-25% today, they feel is a fair price because they also expect that uh, the price on carbon uh, will continue to rise in, in Europe, especially with the carbon price we have here. And there is a strong correlation between sort of the, the, the price on, on uh, carbon uh, or the cost of carbon and then the, the premium that we can charge for the green steel. So today is around 2025. It's so interesting. I, I know one of the partnerships that you signed with is Mercedes. Do you think their hope is that they can offset that full 20, 25 percent of the additional cost of green steel just by saying to their consumers, who I'm sure are also saying to them, hey, you know, we, we're pushing you also to be greener. Um, we're willing to pay the, the additional price for it. Yeah, and I would say that they're actually doing that already today. There are yeah. many of their electrical cars in, in the <clears throat> European uh, sort of uh, automotive industry. They are sold to the consumer as a CO2 neutral product, but they, they are paying for certificates, CO2 certificates, then at the cost of around 100 euro per ton of CO2. So basically, we are, are replacing the certificates by abating at the core. Uh, and um, so, so they know basically what the willingness uh, from the consumers is to pay for that that car or that truck or that fridge or the freezer. And that's how customers know. And I think on, on that side, that means that they, uh, it's not 25% more expensive on the total product because when you break down how much of the bill of material that is, is steel in, in these products, the car or the fridge, it turns out to be around 2-3% uh, that, that you, you affect actually the price or the total value of the product. And, and that they say... Okay, maybe that's that's acceptable to our customers. So they will push it through. 
Are you talking to other automakers as well? Yeah, so I think there is a strong interest. We, we have signed contracts already with um, with BMW and with Mercedes, and, and there are more to come. Uh, there are we have also signed with uh, heavy commercial vehicle suppliers and like Scania, uh, and also then um, and uh, this tier one suppliers towards um, the automotive industry, so companies like Scheffler, ZF, Bilstein in in Germany, but also steel re-rollers like Marsigalia, for example, a big big uh, supplier mm. also into different industries. So, um, yes, I think it's a broad range. And the one common denominator with all customers is that they have signed up on science-based targets. So they have good control of the scope one, two, and also scope three upstream. So they've done their homework. Uh, and I think that has been the way for us to segment the market. And they're all first movers in, in, in their respective industry. Yeah, something that you said before that caught my attention as well, but we've sort of moved on from it. And I was going to ask you, by the time you're up and running by, by 20, um, 2030, really producing 5 million tonnes of green steel, I believe, is the, is the target, um, how the price of producing yeah. green hydrogen and green steel will have adjusted. But I think your more important point was that by that point, with regulation, with the challenges of reporting what your, your um, carbon emissions are, actually the cost of producing carbon is going to be that much higher. So it's, it's that trade-off that matters. How do we scale this, Henrik? I mean, 5 million tonnes is important, but what, it's 3% of world steel production. We need to do this on a far greater scale. No, you're right. You're right. So, I mean, 5, five, ton, five million tonnes is 5% of the European market. So, yeah. so I think what, what our purpose as a company is to decarbonize hard to abate industries. And we, we start with the steel. So we, we do not see ourselves as a disruptor of this industry rather than an enabler. And what we have done now is we have shown that there is, there is a market for green steel, there is a premium for it. We have created a definition with our 25 customers, uh, and we've shown that it's technically possible, and you can actually finance a product like this uh, with a startup with no, no balance sheet, no income statement, and, and we can fund five and a half billion uh, US dollars to, to get this off the ground, and we're already building the factory. So I think we've shown the incumbents that, guys, it's, it's possible, and they are following now, which I think is very positive. Uh, and, and it takes maybe a little bit longer, a little bit slower, because they have a lot of assets that they, of course, need to, to cater for and, and adjust to. But uh, so I think that the scaling here will, will, will already sort of start moving now uh, when we see that it's possible. But the real scaling, I think, will not be to do exactly what we do. I think it will be rather that keep the existing steel industry, the so-called downstream, where you mm. do sort of the re-rolling, and then instead of importing iron ore to Europe and, and I think to, to North America and so on as well, you should import then the product that comes out of our second platform, so the so-called green iron. And that is a product that you can ship around the world. It's called green HBI, green hot bricketed iron. And I think that will be the quickest way because then you can reuse a lot of the assets that's in the industry already, the technology, the competence, the knowledge, uh, and, and that would be the quickest way for us to, to really move this industry up to 2030. Mm, I'm scribbling down notes, green iron. Need to do more research on that. Um, you made the point that actually it's quite easy to get the financing to start to start producing this and, and building a factory, as, as we discussed. Um, are banks willing to lend to you because you're trying to green up a dirty industry? Because they themselves also are trying to move away from dirtier parts of their loan portfolio as well. How hard is it to raise money and, and what's the path to profitability? Because, you know, you've, you've, you've raised debt to do this. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's easy when you don't have, yeah. uh, you basically <laughs> have a PowerPoint and you don't have a, a factory. So I think, uh, yes. you, you, I think that the, the really good sort of uh, game changer here has been that we, we managed to pre-sell uh, half of our production. Uh, and we did that on so-called take-or-pay contracts, which actually means that the customer have to take the volume regardless of what happens. And they are seven-year contracts with these big names. And that is a collateral for our banks to, 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 to lend us the money. So I think that has been a very sort of strong pillar in, in our debt structure. So first European banks, first-class European banks standing for, for that together with some export credit agencies. That's the debt mm. side. The, the equity side... I think it's the same sort of mindset, the true north of, of uh, um, sort of companies and funds that want to um, to drive the transformative, uh, sustainable uh, industrial green revolution. And they are doing it uh, uh, with dedicated funds. And, and uh, I think they're doing it, yes, to clean up maybe some of the conscious. But I think also that their investors on their side, uh, they are keen on, on seeing this transformation. So there is money available, yes, but I think doing it without uh, sort of uh, a balance sheet from the beginning is, of course, a, a challenge. But uh, that we have managed now to put together the debt side and we're just concluding the, the equity side. And, and uh, the first product is five and a half billion uh, euro then. And um, mm. start of production, end of 2025, you will see a positive cash flow roughly 18 months after that. So it's, um, it's quite a powerful business case as well. So it's not only sustainable, uh, and resilient uh, for the future, but it's also highly money. profitable because of, <laughs> yes. yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's when we're yeah. going to reinvest and follow up. I'm going to get yelled world, at. So. I've, I've got to, I've got to wrap up the conversation. I could keep you talking for an hour. Um, yeah, I love my job on a daily basis, but um, fascinating conversation, sir. Thank you so much. We'll speak again soon. Um, Henrik Henriksen, there, the CEO of H2 Queen Steel. Thank you. Latin America is certainly breaking temperature records this year, and it's coming at the cost of lives and severe drought across many areas. Rafael Romo has more. Boats that used to be on water are now lying on grass. Residents can now walk where they used to be able to swim. This is Alajuela Lake, which serves as a reservoir for the Panama Canal. There used to be boats right here where we are, this nearby resident says. Water came this far. A severe drought has forced authorities in Panama not only to implement water-saving measures, but also to impose restrictions on cargo ships crossing the key global trade route. Panama is the latest example of countries in Latin America having to deal with severe drought conditions. A report published by the European Commission states that precipitation deficits, above average temperatures and recurrent heat waves are causing one of the worst droughts in decades in the region. In the fall of 2021 and the spring of the following year, low water levels at the Paraná River, which flows for nearly 4,900 kilometers, 3,000 miles through Brazil, Paraguay and Argentina, caused cargo ships to stop delivering goods. The situation in Argentina is unprecedentedly bad. They're having the worst drought conditions in 75 years, and we're seeing those conditions exist in neighboring countries as well. Chile having the worst drought conditions in 50 years, and Uruguay having the worst drought conditions in 80 years. Mexico is now recovering from a late spring heat wave, and last summer, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador declared an emergency in the northern state of Nuevo León due to lack of water, 
a situation that experts believe aggravated conditions that have pushed many Mexicans to leave their country. So if we have large-scale movements of peoples from one place to another, it's going to put a strain on the social services of those countries. Um, it's also just going to create economic dead areas in some of these countries where there, there cannot be business. An analysis by Grow Intelligence published in 2021 concluded that Mexico's corn crop is threatened by the country's most widespread and intense droughts in nearly a decade, and tight corn markets are likely to transmit the shockwaves worldwide. Back in Panama, the government agency that manages the canal imposed draft restrictions, meaning cargo ships with a very low hull can't transit, which may slow the delivery of goods worldwide. Rafael Romo, CNN Atlanta. Oh, time's more than up. Becky Anderson's up after this. Stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.